Good morning, everyone. Uh, how's everyone doing? Glad you're here. Mm. Okay, sure. Let's do this. Um, I'm glad you're here, even if you're not. Uh, the 8 o'clock service, man, I must have been way too early for them. They were just like, meh. So, uh, I, my name is Trevor. I'm the children's pastor here. And uh, we are, we're going to have a good morning. I can just tell right now. And so, uh, I'm going to just do this how we do it in children's ministry. I'm just going to tell you everything that's going to happen today up front. And that way, you at no point have to wonder, are we almost done? Because you'll know. You'll be like, well, this is where we're at in the sermon. So, we're probably almost done. And so, it's this. Um, I get up here not very often, uh, and so I'm a little bit of a stranger to you. You just go, oh, you're the guy that works with elementary students, which is right. Uh, but I'm just going to tell you a little bit more about me, so that way I feel like we build that little friendship relationship and we can move on forward with our lives. Uh, and then we will learn about Gideon from the book of Judges chapter 6. See right there, that's a hint that if you have a Bible... Go to Judges chapter 6. We're going to need it in a little bit. Uh, so we'll talk a little bit about me, a little bit about Judges and Gideon, and then we're going to talk a lot about God. By the time we are done here today, we're going to unpack that dude completely. Um, in 27 minutes, you'll know everything about the Lord, because um, I'm awesome at what I do. And then finally, we're going to talk about you, and we're going to talk about because of what we learned about the story of Gideon and what that tells us about God what does that mean for you? And, and then we'll be done. And so that's just what we're going to do. But first, let's just start by um, going before the Lord in prayer, and then we'll jump right into this. God, we love you. You are amazing. Um, and we're just so blessed that we get to come here um, to, to a church and serve you and worship you. And, and just, I just feel honored that I get to come and be a part of this church um, with these people. We get to serve and worship you. And so just help us to be um, just as much like you as we possibly can, God. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Cool. So like I said, my name's Trevor. I'm the children's pastor. Um, I have a lovely wife, Jordan, who I don't, uh, she was, I don't know if she's in here or not. So, oh, look, she's over here. Cool. What up, girl? Um, I, I also, I love the chance to talk to parents every now and again. I prefer children's ministry, honestly, uh, but it's nice to tell a story and not have a kid be like, excuse me, and then they just start flossing, uh, which is just like, it's like, sit down. Um, if you don't have elementary students, you're like, why do they carry floss in their pockets? And that's not what I'm talking about. So, um, I really, this is a weird thing about me, but it like, it makes my heart happy when someone asks for my signature by saying, hey, can I get your autograph on this? And someone else appreciates that too. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, and like, you'll go like pay for something with a card at a restaurant. Like, you just need to just sign that and you sign. And they're like, but they're like, hey, can I get your autograph on that? And I'm just like, mm, Aaron Rodgers. And um, I'm just, it's just the most I'm ever gonna ever be to like, having someone actually want my autograph. So anyway, um, it, it honestly, it bums me out that there's no story in the Bible of Jesus healing a torn ACL. Um, so many of my fantasy football seasons have been wrecked by this that it makes me just wish there was one story where it was like, and then Jesus healed Rabbi Seinfeld's knee and the next season he was the MVP of the Jewish Basketball Association. Um, and there's nothing like that. And I'm just like, everyone's tearing their ACLs now and Jesus never once healed it that we have a written account of. Um, I'm weird, by the way. Um, I used to work on an elevator. That's a true story. 
Um, I, I, was, I worked at a restaurant called Myers Courtyard in beautiful Keokuk, Iowa, and it was an old crank elevator. You had to manually close the doors and lock them in the right order, and then it was this little crank over here on the left side, and people would come in, and I would take them up to the third floor, where on Friday nights, we had an all-you-can-eat fried catfish special. And, and this is where I worked, and I would smell like catfish every Friday night until about Wednesday of the next week. And every week, there was this guy who would come in named Vern, and Vern was like, like Vern was my nemesis. Uh, Newman, okay, that's like Vern. When Vern, when Vern comes in, you're just like, Vern. And I say this, I was a 14-year-old kid, and Vern was like, 63, really weird person to have as your nemesis. But Vern would come in and say the same thing to me every single week. He would look me dead in the face and make this deadpan quote. And he would say this, bet this job has its ups and downs. (laughs) Which is a great line because it's an elevator which has ups and downs. It's awesome once. But 13 weeks in a row is too many times for Vern to use the same joke, get new material, Vern. The other thing is this, that he would say that, and then I would, I would say, yeah, I guess it does. And I would go up in the elevator, and he would get off and say, hey, and when I come down, that's when I'll tip you, because I had a little tip jar, because running an elevator is such difficult work. And I would go up, and he would leave, and then Vern would come over into the restaurant, where he would eat his catfish until his heart was content. And then he would come back to the elevator and he would say the same thing every single week. And that was this. Oh, I ate a lot of catfish. I should probably take the stairs and walk this off. And then would walk down the stairs, avoiding the need to tip me. Every single time. And so as a 14-year-old, Vern became my nemesis because like, he kept telling me, hey, I'm going to give you extra money. Which, by the way, I was getting paid in cash under the table. That's right, the dirty money. And, <laughs> and Vern was like, I'll pay you extra. And then Vern never paid me extra as a kid. As a kid, nemesis. That's my Newman. As an adult, that's hilarious. <laughs> like, what a hustle. To every week be like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit you up later with that cash and then never do it. So, um, so in case I ever tell you I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tip you on the way down, just know. You're not getting anything. So um, that's enough about me. Uh, I feel like we're good friends now. You know about my childhood, and um, you know that I wish Jesus healed ACLs. Um, Let's talk about Gideon. Uh, We are in this series called Trusting God in the Midst. And last week, Dan talked about Naaman, trusting God when it doesn't make sense. And Naaman was this man, he had this skin disease called leprosy. And if you had leprosy in in Bible times, it it was a death warrant and Naaman goes, okay, I don't know what to do. And so he goes and talks to, to a prophet of God and he says, here's what God wants you to do. God wants you to take a bath in this river seven times. And it's this gross river called the Jordan River. And Naaman even says, mm, that's a gross river. That seems like a bad idea. And he says, this is what God wants you to do. Go do it. Long story short, Naaman goes and takes seven baths in the river and he's healed of his leprosy. And we learned we need to trust God. Sometimes God's gonna ask you to do something and you're gonna go, that doesn't make any sense. But it's God telling you to do it, so you need to trust it. And so today, our story is going to be more about this idea, trusting God when it seems impossible. Where God asks you to do something, and you go, well, I mean, I guess that makes sense, but there's, there's no way <laughs> that this works. And there's no better story than Gideon for this, because Gideon's whole, like, his entire, like, six, seven, and eight of Judges is just story of impossible after impossible after impossible. And it starts like this. Judges 6.1, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord handed them over to the Midianites for seven years. Now, pause. 
We'll just take a second after one verse. This is the theme of the book of Judges. It starts like this. The Israelites did evil. The Lord handed them over to an enemy. The Israelites cry out for, for saving. God saves them. Then the Israelites disobey God. And then God punishes them. And then they cry out to God and God saves them. And, and then the Israelites disobey God and then God punishes them. And it actually happens, um, that phrase, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight, is found in Judges 2.11, Notice, 3.7.3.12. It took them five verses to, to mess that up. Like they, were like, they were like, God, you're awesome. <laughs> and they left. Five verses. And so we are in now Judges chapter 6. And what's happening is that the Midianites are like a plague of locusts. In the Bible, the Midianites are the bad guys. If you're ever in the Bible and you come across Midian, they're always the bad guys. There's one time they're not. I'm going to let that time surprise you. But it's basically like um, watching a World War II movie, and you never get to the end. You're like, whoa, Germany was the bad guys? I had no idea. Like, you always know. You're like, oh, that guy. In World War II, German, bad guy. Midianites. Come across them in the Bible? Bad guys. Okay? So the Midianites have been handed, or the Israelites have been handed over to the Midianites by the Lord. And so finally, God sends an angel to come to this guy named Gideon. And, and I'm just going to kind of tell you the story, how would in children's ministry give you a couple of little tips to help you remember this story. And here's what happens is that God comes to Gideon and Gideon is hiding in a wine press, getting wheat ready to be made into bread. He's hiding underground in a wine press because the last time he did it above ground, the Midianites came through and destroyed the wheat. And they were literally actively starving the Israelites. Like there wasn't a famine in the land, but they were starving the Israelites. So Gideon's hiding and an angel of the Lord comes and Gideon asked God this question. God, why are we under the Midianite oppression? Where are the miracles that we've heard about from our ancestors? Aren't you the God that brought us out of Egypt? And God says, mighty warrior. That's what he calls me. He says, mighty warrior, I'm going to use you to rescue the Israelites. And Gideon says this in Judges 6.15. But Lord, Gideon replied, how can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I am the least in my entire family. God says, I'm going to use you to save Israel. And Gideon goes, look at me. I'm the smallest. I'm the youngest. I'm the weakest. I'm hiding in a wine press right now. And God addresses him as mighty warrior. And so Gideon says, but look at me. And we say that sometimes too when God says, hey, I have this thing I want you to do. I have this dream for you. And we go, mm-hmm, but look at me. You sure you got the right guy? You just call me a mighty warrior. I'm the youngest. I'm the smallest. I'm weak. I'm insignificant. I'm small. And God says this. The Lord said to him, I will be with you. And you will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. That, that line, but I will be with you is important because when we say, but look at me, God goes, ah, but look at me. And then he says, and, and you will destroy the Midianites. He doesn't say, and I will. He says, but you will destroy the Midianites and I'll be with you. He's gonna use Gideon to do great things. Hmm, will that come up later? Let's see. The story goes on that God says, Gideon, here's what I want you to do. I want you to trust me. I want you to trust me in the midst. And I want you to go and cut down your father's Asherah pole and destroy the altar to Baal. Those are, these are two articles of pagan worship. He says, I want you to destroy the false idols. Now, by doing this, um, that would be like if, you know, if he does this, it'd be like burning a church down. Like it's a place of worship. This is a, this is a hate crime 
terrorist attack type thing God's asking Gideon to do. And he says, Gideon, I want you to go and do this. And, and Gideon says, oh, okay. Um, so I know that it's you asking me to do this. Wait until I come back. I'm gonna go offer a sacrifice. So Gideon goes and offers a sacrifice to God. God's there and Gideon says, okay, fine, I'm gonna do it. And so in the middle of the night, hiding in the middle of the night, Gideon gets his servants and he goes and he cuts down the Asherah pole. And just as God commanded, takes the idol to the God Asherah cuts it down, lights it on fire, and then sacrifices a bowl to God on top of it. Dope. Okay? Like savage Jesus move. He goes, he goes take the false idol, burn it, and then sacrifice to me on it. Get at me, players. That's what, that's what Gideon does. And then God says, okay, Gideon, you trusted me enough to get rid of that distraction. Now, here's what I need you to do. I need you to go fight Midian. It's like, Okay, that's a 10 steps further, but go fight Midian. And he says this, then Gideon said to God, we're in Judges 6.36 now. He says this, if you are truly going to use me to rescue Israel as you promised, prove it to me in this way. He says, God, prove it. Like, if you want me to do this, prove it to me. And that's the thing that we say. We say, God, okay, okay, but I'm going I'm to need a sign here. Okay, I'm going to need a sign. And this is Gideon's sign. He says, God, I'm going to put out a fleece and, and what's going to happen is I'm going to leave it out all night. When I come out in the morning, if the fleece is wet and the ground is dry, I'll know that you want me to go and fight Midian. And so Gideon goes in, he goes to sleep, he comes out the next morning, picks up the fleece. The fleece is wet, the ground is dry. He wrings out a bowl full of water. This is awesome. And he goes, one more. <laughs> one more test, God. I'm going to put out the fleece. This time I want that to be dry and I want everything else to be wet. Then Gideon goes to bed, gets up the next day. Sure enough, the ground is wet. The fleece is dry. And here's what God says. God, God's patient with Gideon, but he says this, Gideon, move it. Okay? When, when we say prove it, God will, be, God will be patient with us, but then God's gonna say move it. Okay? So, but look at me, but look at me, move it, prove it. Here's what happens. Gideon puts out a call. He says, I need warriors to fight Midian. By the way, the Midianites have 135,000 soldiers. 32,000 people show up for Gideon. 32,000 against 135,000. And I love, I love this, by the way, because then God says to Gideon, you have too many warriors with you. If I let you fight the Midianites, the Israelites will boast to me that they saved themselves by their own strength. 32,135. He goes, you have too many people. And Gideon's like, nope, not true. And God says this, no, because if you win this, you're gonna think it's because of you. Because we as people do that too, where we, we do cool things in our lives and, and maybe sometimes it's on our own, maybe sometimes it's because of God and we love either way to take the credit for ourselves. And he says this, if Israel wins, they're going to say, but look at what we did for my glory. And God said, that's not what we're gonna do. So you need to get a smaller army. And so here's how he cuts the army down. He says, Gideon, ask them if anyone wants to go home because they're scared. You can do so now. And Gideon goes, well, I'm, I'm confident in my army right now. So he says, if anyone's scared and wants to go home, you can do that now. 22,000 people get up and walk out. <laughs> yeah. There was no like, I better save face and like try and be manly. They were just like, yeah, okay, deuces, I'm out of here. And he's left with 10,000 people. And he's like, okay, 10,000, 135,000. And God's like, yeah, that's still too many. <laughs> And Gideon's just like, what? He says, do this. Go down to the stream, get some water. Anyone who cups their hands full of water and goes like this, put them over here. 
And anyone who goes and just gets on their hands and knees and puts their face in the water, move them over here. So Gideon does that, and they go get drinks, and some people do this, and some people do this, and he separates them. And God says, anyone who's over here, send them home. 9,700 people get sent home. And Gideon is left with 300 people. And God goes, perfect. <laughs> this is awesome. He goes, this is perfect. And, and so Gideon takes the army, does what God says. They surround the Midianites with nothing but they have, ready for this? They have torches with clay jars on top and they have trumpets. <laughs> and they surround the Midianite army. And, and at the signal that Gideon gives, they crash, the, they break their jars showing that they are surrounded by fire to the Midianites and they blow their trumpets. And I love this in Judges 7.22. When the Israelites blew their ram's horns, the Lord caused, the Lord caused, the Lord caused the warriors in the camp to fight against each other with their own swords. The Israelites don't actually fight here. They show their fire, they blow their trumpets, and then the Midianites go full Game of Thrones and just start like offing each other. They're like, what? Waking up in their tents until there's only 15,000 Midianites left and they run away. And Gideon, here's the thing, what happens in the next part of the story is you need to read this for yourself in chapter eight. It's insane. But Gideon runs after him with his army and they're chasing him down. And then he gets to this town. And he's like, hey, we're chasing Midian. You guys want to help? And they're like, mm, we don't really know. And Gideon goes, hey, if you don't help us right now, we're going to come back here and we're going to wipe out your whole town. They're like, mm, we don't really know. And Gideon goes, I'll be back. He runs down, kills the rest of the army, comes back to this town, kills all of them. Because he's like, you didn't help God. What? I don't tell that part of the story in children's ministry, but that is fascinating. <laughs> Gideon trusts God with the impossible a number of times. But here's the deal. Is now, this is where we move from Gideon onto the truth about God, because quite frankly, if you leave here and go, yeah, how can I be more like Gideon? You missed the point. Because last time I checked, God doesn't call us to fight armies in that, in that context. He's never been like, hey, I need you to get your five best friends together and then go fight those guys. <laughs> like, it's not how God works typically these days anymore. But God puts us in, uh, we have our own impossible situations where God comes and meets us in the impossible. And that's what we want to talk is what do we know about the truth about God when it seems impossible? And here's, here's what we know is that, well, let me start with this. We need, to, we need to define impossible. Can we do that really quick? Let's define impossible. Um, because what, what's impossible to an optimist and a pessimist are very different things. <laughs> and, and so I'm very much a pessimist, and it's like everything is impossible to me, but there are some people who are just like irritatingly happy about things. Um, and so let's define it this way. First thing that makes it impossible, it can't be done. Whether it's because the amount of time that it's going to take you is not, you don't have enough time, or the job is too big. For example, me running a marathon tomorrow, that's impossible. I am in, I'm in no kind of shape. I've done no training. My diet is atrocious. I cannot run a marathon tomorrow. Now, if you said, Trevor, you have one year to run a marathon, maybe. I'm not going to rule it out as impossible. Probably not disciplined enough to do it, but that's not because it's impossible. That's because I'm weak. And, and so it has to be the time to accomplish it is too short, or the job is too big. That's the first thing. The second thing is this, it has to hold some weight. Like there has to be something riding on it. There has to be some pressure. 
in this impossible situation. And, and really, we'll just call this life or death. Like in Gideon's case, this is a, the Midianites are going to starve his clan to death. This is life or death, not enough time, too big of a job. It is impossible. And we know this about God. When we are in an impossible situation in our life, God sympathizes with us in the impossible because he knows no impossible. Because God can do literally anything because he is God and he doesn't understand impossible in the same way that we do. But this is, this is really cool. Is that God empathizes with us in our impossible because of Jesus. See, sympathy is where you can just, you can sit from afar and say, I feel bad for you. But empathy is where you go, I've been there. And God sent Jesus to earth. Jesus was born as a human, which first of all, if you've been living in heaven and you get sent to earth, that's a raw deal. Second of all, he was, he was tempted. He's faced temptation like you and I have faced temptation. He, uh, anyone ever been like wronged by a friend? Because Jesus had this one friend who was like one of his 12 closest who turned out to be just the worst. And he was betrayed by a friend. He had that relationship go south. He was beaten. He was physically, mentally, emotionally abused. He was murdered. And so now when we are in an impossible situation, we go, this is impossible, God. You couldn't possibly understand because you're God. He goes, no, I totally get it because I have Jesus. And that's part of why God sent Jesus was to be that, for Jesus to go, this is me and my impossible, see what I do and be like me. So that's the first thing is that we have a God who can sympathize with us in our impossible, but also can empathize with us in our impossible Another thing is this, that when you follow God, when you trust God, it's going to take you to and past what you thought was possible. If you only go up to the point where you go, this is what I can do. This is, my, this, is my, this is the line in the sand, and I can't do anything more than this. This is my ceiling. I can't go past this. And it's on your own. You're never going to get out of impossible. And I love these two verses that Dan referenced last week um, that just... I just love them. There's Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. It says lean not on your own understanding because again, if you only do what you can do, you're gonna fall short. And the second verse is this, Isaiah 55, 9, and it says, For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. This reminds me uh, of, a, of a maze, where you're in a maze and all you see is like wall, wall, corridor, hallway, hallway, and you go, where do I go? And you can run around that maze for minutes, for hours, for days. But God, his ways are higher than your ways. His thoughts are higher than your thoughts. He can see the whole maze. He knows where you're going. And when you trust God and you go, God, I'm just, I don't, I don't know why I should go this way, but I'm gonna trust you, I'm gonna go this way. And he can lead you out of the maze. And you're thinking, how do I trust God though? because of my impossible. You go, how do I trust God in the midst of an addiction? And you have to trust God's healing. And how do I trust God in the midst of, of a divorce or infidelity? And you have to trust his reconciliation. And how do I trust God with my brokenness? And you have to trust his, just his redemption. And you have to trust God when you have nothing because he has and he is everything. That's where we have to trust God. And you're going, okay, super easy to say, Trevor, awesome. 
Where's, where's the practicality of this? And, and here's the last step. And this is where we're going to talk about God, but we're going to move into you. And it's this, that God will ask you to take action and remove distractions. Before God asked Gideon to go and fight the army of Midian, he said this, get rid of the idols. The first thing you have to do is whatever is going to take the focus of you and your family and your clan away from me, get rid of it. And then I'll know that A, you're trusting me, and B, your focus isn't on that, it's on this, it's on me. And so when, when Gideon did that, he, he really separated himself from things that were important, like family, like friendships. And God's going to ask you to do that. He's going to say, okay, for you to get through impossible with me, what are you going to have to remove or add to your life? And it, it's going to separate you from some things and some people. Maybe it's, maybe I, I, I used addiction earlier. Maybe it's an addiction and you to beat that, to get out of that where you go, I don't, I don't see how I can possibly do this. And you might have to separate yourself from a relationship or from some habits or from a job that puts you in an un, a bad situation. We'll call it that. And you go, ah, but, but I, don't know, I don't know if I can do that. That seems impossible. And someone's probably sitting here going, okay, but I don't have an addiction and that doesn't seem impossible. Anyway, and so let's talk about, uh, let's talk about debt for a second. You, you, get the, you get a check for working your job and all the money is immediately scheduled to go out to like your house and your car and your credit cards and your student loans and your medical bills and you have nothing left for like you and your family because it's already owed somewhere else. This is that, that life or death thing where you go, okay, how does debt seem like life or death? Well, let me ask you about this. When you have debt, you owe money, and there's not enough money for your family, are the conversations with your spouse good ones or bad ones? Probably not the best. And so we're going to talk about the, the life or death of your marriage, or just the stress of going, I need to pay for this. I need, I need to take care of this, but I don't, there's not enough coming in for what has to go out, and you're stressed, and that's like bad for your blood pressure, which is bad for your heart, which will literally shorten your life, life or death physically. Or let's do, let's do your job where you just wake up and you're like, man, I don't want to go to work for this, that, the other. Maybe it's because it's just a really unhealthy environment, but you make too much money to quit. And that's not a thing that other people can like, you can't complain about that. So be like, man, I got a really bad job, but I'm making a lot of money. But if you're in that, you understand that where you go, no, like this is a super unhealthy environment. I travel a lot, which is not good for, for me and my family. I don't see my kids nearly as much as I should. I'm never around my wife. When I'm on the road, I'm, I'm facing this temptation or that temptation. And you need to remove yourself from that. And you go, but that sounds impossible. But to everyone else, you go, like you, you just know everyone else is gonna go, really, it's impossible to quit your job where you make too much money. Here's... Um, Here's my impossible. That uh, it was a couple of years ago, and and I just remember I was driving down the road. Uh, I was living here. I was working here at the church, and I was driving down the road, and I just had this thought in my brain that was, I hope that there is somewhere around me an irresponsible driver, and I hope that irresponsible driver is texting and driving which causes them to wreck into my car. And I don't want them to like hit my bumper so that I collect insurance money. 
Like, I want them to cross the median and smash this thing because I, I was just done. Like, I did not want to be alive. And I wouldn't say I wasn't, like, suicidal. Like, I wasn't going to drive my car off the road, but I was totally cool if someone else did. And, and I would go home and like, I have this wife who's awesome and she like encourages me and supports me. And, and so it's like, well, I can't, I can't tell her how I'm feeling because it's not like, I'm not trying to get away from this bad thing in my life. I'm just like, no, I'm just like, I'm just, I'm just empty. And you can't tell her, you can't be like, hey, you know what? Like, you're awesome. You're a great wife. I don't, I want to be dead. You can't say that to somebody. Or um, here's a fun one. You're a children's pastor. You work at Valley Real Life and you go in and tell kids every week, hey, let me tell you about happiness and the hope that we have in Jesus. And then you walk off stage and you're just like, oh my gosh, I want to die. Who did you tell your boss that? You go, hey, I know I just got done teaching kids about Jesus, but like I'm spiritually just like dead inside. I'm just, I'm done. Like I'm empty. I can only, I'm not even sure if I believe what I'm saying right now. Because it's just like, I'm just done. So you can't tell your wife, you can't tell your parents, you can't tell friends, you can't tell your coworkers, you can't tell your boss, you can't tell anyone. And so it just builds and it builds and it builds and it builds until at a certain point that becomes so heavy you can't, you can't carry that anymore. And I just remember I was here on a Thursday night, church was about to start, it was like 40 minutes until service. And, and like I just like snapped because I just knew like either I had to tell somebody right now or I wasn't going to make it through the summer. And, and I got to that point because what if I trust God with this? I, I, am, I am empty. I have nothing and I'm going to trust God. But what if I don't get better? What if I don't start feeling happier? What if I don't find joy in work or in life? What happens if this is just what I'm going to feel the rest of my entire life? And so I waited, and I waited, and I waited until I finally told someone, this, this is me. This is what's going on in my life and they helped me get help. And I'm here today, happy ending to that story. But there are, there are those of you out here, and whether it's, whether it's addiction or it's debt or it's a divorce or it's depression, you're sitting here going, I am in impossible. And I don't know how to get out. And I want to share with you something that I learned through this process um, of, of when it comes to trusting God, and it's this, don't trust God in the midst of impossible because he'll give you what you want. Trust God in the midst of impossible because he already gave you what you need. We talked earlier, God sent his son Jesus who was born on earth as a human and he was tempted and he was betrayed and he was abused and he was killed and he died for you. And if the only good thing that God ever does for you in your entire life is that he sent Jesus to die on a cross for your sins, he's done enough. 
And that's, that's hard to sit with. Except we go back to the story of Gideon, where Gideon, the first thing he says to God is this. Where are the miracles? Aren't you the God that brought us out of Egypt? Because that story had been passed down, that they were slaves, and when they got out, it was God that rescued them. And then God says to Gideon, you have too many soldiers, and you're going to say we did this because it was on our own strength. But I need you, when you tell that story, to say this. We took 300 people against 135,000, and we won because the Lord caused it. And when you and your impossible situation come out on the other side, the story is going to go like this. God brought me out. And when you do it on your own, you're not gonna make it. But the Lord can cause something amazing because he has no impossible. He brings you out of a situation where the job is too big, the amount of time is too small, and it's life or death, and he rescues you. You just bow your heads with me, and we're gonna pray. Father God, we love you, and, and we just humbly come before you in the impossible that we're in. Um, we just thank you for being who you are, for being amazing, for being incredible, for being able to do everything. And we just ask you for, for vision, that, that you would give us a glimpse of, of your higher thoughts and your higher ways that we would trust you. Maybe, maybe we're just asking God to prove it and we just ask for your patience. Maybe, maybe the ball's in our court completely and we just need to submit and trust you, God. And God, I just pray that, that today we would take the chance to do that. Thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. It's in his name I pray, amen.